0: Welcome to the first ever episode of Dark Shadows. These will be mini-episodes, so shorter in length than Dark Side episodes, and we'll cover some of the dark corners of our past that have shaped and cast shadows on our world today. As always, listener discretion is advised. So with that said, let's get on with the show. Today's Dark Shadows is actually an addendum to the Fred Konwatsu story covered in Darkside Episode 19, The Land of the Free. If you want to hear how today's history actually affected the Japanese American people on a personal level, and the struggles they had to go through to right the wrongs bestowed on them, well, please also listen to that episode and its follow-up, Episode 20, The Home of the Brave. On this very first episode of Dark Shadows, oh why? I will be covering just how and why an internment of an entire ethnic population of the USA were treated like criminals, locked up like animals, and had their civil liberties stripped from them. Yes, I'll be tackling the internment of the Japanese Americans during World War II in the United States, and just how and why a government could turn on its own citizens. The internment of the Japanese-Americans was the culmination of almost three quarters of a century of systemic bias and racism towards those of Asian origin, but most specifically, towards those of Japanese origin. To fully understand just why and how a country would turn on its own people under the guise of looking like the enemy as they were termed, we really are going to have to go back to the beginning for this one. The history behind one of the biggest human rights atrocities and worst civil liberties violations in United States history didn't happen quickly. No, it had been building for years, permeating and saturating deeper with each passing year, casting long spindly tendrils of hate that percolated across the generations, embedding a deep-rooted bias that almost sparked a war. It's an unpleasant tale, so I do have to forewarn you that you're going to hear some graphic information about systemic racism. Okay, are you ready for the deep dive into what lays behind the shadows that cast this awful chapter of history? Excellent. Let's dive in. following the Mexican-American War over territory that ended in 1847, Mexico ceded 55% of its land, including parts of present-day Arizona, California, New Mexico, Texas, Colorado, Nevada, and Utah, to the United States. As these new territories were sparsely populated, they were not adopted as states into the Union. However, A month after the war ended, a cry emitted from California that was heard across the country and would shape its history forever. There's gold in these hills. Yep, there was gold in Sacramento Valley. This saw the start of the gold rush years in California, whereby thousands of people flocked to the west coast. 300,000 to be precise. As California was becoming so populated at such a fast rate, and with a newly discovered mineral-rich resource within its hills, it wasn't long before California was welcomed as a state into the Union in 1850. However, as most who traversed to the west to seek gold in them-thar hills spent every waking hour scrabbling through the dirt and panhandling in the rivers, this didn't leave many people free to build the much-needed infrastructure, railroads, housing, and, of course, saloons, to help accommodate the new influx of people. What was needed was an injection of labour. And so, California opened its doors and welcomed overseas migrants to come to California to perform this menial work. How nice of them. And it just so happened at this time, that people in China were looking beyond their shores for opportunities. Two very costly wars against Britain and France had sent the Chinese economy into a free fall. Heavy taxes were levied on the people to recoup the debts, and the already financially squeezed land labourers found that they struggled to feed and home their families. Hearing that America needed a labour force, a mass migration commenced from 1858 onwards. At first, everything seemed to be relatively fine between the white Americans and the Asian communities. As per the norm of the time, they lived separately and didn't interact, but for all intents and purpose, the friction between the communities was diminutive. But all that changed in 1873... Not because of issues between the citizens in California. Oh no, this problem's genesis started some 5,000 miles away, in Europe. The German government decided to only use currency backed by gold, instead of both gold and silver. And soon, the rest of Europe followed suit. Being America's main trading partners and wanting to keep the trade route open, America changed the gold standard also. However, this led to a devaluation in silver and a currency shortage felt on both sides of the Atlantic. In order to control their cash flow, Europe stopped international investment. In particular, they stopped funding the US railroads. All this came as the railroad boom was at its height and money was constantly needed to finance more construction. This led to bond companies being unable to pay for the building of the railroads and ultimately going bankrupt. When railroad workers heard that their main source of income had gone bankrupt, they made a run on the banks. This had a ripple effect across the nation and caused a stampede on banks throughout the country. This in turn forced the New York Stock Exchange to close for 10 days. Railroad construction halted, credit dried up, and overnight thousands became jobless. And this led to a national depression. So much so that growth and subsequently work was stagnated and intermittent for everyone. As Chinese migrants were still coming into the country in search of work and were willing to work for less than the white man, a brewing resentment grew towards the Chinese. This soon spilled over to violence, and the stories of these clashes hit the national media and the ears of the government. The hostility in California became so fractious that the government stepped in and passed the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. This act became the first and only major federal legislation to explicitly suspend immigration for a specific nationality. Basically, no one of Chinese origin could migrate to the USA. At all. In subsequent years, the act would be amended to include the fact that any person of Chinese origin, could not return to the USA if they left the country, regardless of reason. Okay, I'm just going to say this, and this is my opinion, and feel free to challenge me. I have visited the Statue of Liberty. I've read the colossus written on the stone at her feet. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these the homeless. Tempest tossed to me. I'll lift my lamp beside the golden door. And I can't help but feel that the Chinese Exclusion Act started a new era in which the United States began morphing from a country that welcomed immigrants into a nation of gatekeepers. Anyway, sorry. Back to the history lesson. As the country slowly began to recover from the economic crisis in 1873, work resumed on building the railways. And the more lines that were created, the more people that flocked to the sun-kissed Golden State. And once again, California found itself with a familiar problem. A lack of labour to help build the infrastructure the growing populace needed. And now, also, to feed them. But the Chinese Exclusion Act had blocked the way for cheap labour, and so, America opened its doors to other Asian nations. And it just so happened that Japan was now looking for some of its citizens to find opportunities on other shores. A political revolution in 1868 saw control of the country return to Emperor Meiji. Motsuhito from a military government. Mutsuhito had big plans for Japan, and over the course of his reign, Japan went through one of the biggest transformations of its history, turning it from a feudal country into one of the great powers of the modern world. However, This rapid urbanization and industrialization brought about agricultural decline as land was squeezed from the farmers to make way for the expanding cities. With only 20% of Japan's land suitable for agriculture, the country was struggling to feed its growing population. And so, the emperor encouraged his people to migrate in search of better lives. And so... Japanese began flocking into the USA. Only 55 Japanese were recorded as living in the United States in 1870. But by 1911, more than 400,000 people now resided in the country, and mostly on the West Coast. But they were arriving into a country whereby a racially driven undercurrent ran deep, left over from the clashes against the Chinese communities. And the new Asian arrivals also experienced this racial backlash from the white Americans. These tensions continued to simmer and boil away as the years passed, mostly under the surface, but occasionally spilling over into physical attacks, aimed now, predominantly, at the new Asian immigrants, the Japanese. As the Japanese population in California grew, they were seen by white Americans with suspicion as an entering wedge by Japan. But in 1905, the situation escalated dramatically. Japan won a war against Russia, making it the first eastern country to defeat a western power. A ripple ran through the western world that power in the east was mounting, and accompanied with that was the circulation of a rumour that Japan had won the war because it had infiltrated Russia prior to the war with spies under the guise and cover of migrating people looking for a better life. Soon, the California newspapers were rife with anti-Japanese rhetoric, with headlines warning of yellow peril, inciting that Japanese people had been sent to spy on the USA, with a view to enacting war between the two nations. This sparked anger in Japan, and by 1906, newspapers on both sides of the Pacific were proffering warmongering headlines that only incited more racial tensions. Amidst the backdrop of these spiralling tensions, White residents in San Francisco were protesting against the Board of Education for allowing Japanese children and students to overrun and dominate their schools. And so, in 1906, the San Francisco Board of Education issued a small piece of paper ordering that Japanese and Korean students would be segregated from all public schools they thought this would be dealt with as a local issue. Little did they know, they had just lit the match that almost started a war-filled fire between America and Japan. Whilst residents of San Francisco applauded this move, a vocal cry of protest roared from Japan with demands for the emperor to declare war on America for its appalling treatment of the Japanese people. Amidst this sabre rattling, President Roosevelt, whilst persuading the school board members to repeal their decision, also sent William Taft, Secretary of War, to Japan to cool tensions between the two nations in 1907. This resulted in the Gentlemen's Agreement in which the Japanese government agreed to stop issuing passports to laborers to the US, whilst the US government promised to protect the rights of Japanese immigrants already living in the country. (sighs) Phew. The international crisis had been settled, thanks to Roosevelt's skillful management and diplomacy. Or had it? well, hardly, when the San Francisco newspapers were still spewing derisive racial slurs and rhetoric to a white population who had xenophobia woven deeply into the fabric of their society. So no, nothing was solved because the core of the problem was not on the level of diplomacy, but in the minds of millions of people. Tensions further grew when California brought in the alien land law in 1913, which prohibited aliens ineligible for citizenship from owning agricultural land or possessing long-term leases over it. This law affected all Asian immigrants to California, but it was specifically targeted at the Japanese population. However, soon the world had bigger issues to deal with. World War I was on the horizon. But the war only put a temporary bandage on the situation. For as soon as it was over, immigration to the USA shot through the roof as refugees from the Russian Revolution, the Armenian Genocide and the collapse of the Italian economy all poured into America looking for refuge. In the United States, however, demobilization of soldiers led to increased competition for jobs and growing unemployment, with a burgeoning populace. And soon, racial tensions were flaring across the country. Economic concerns combined with ethnic prejudice was putting pressure on the government to end America's open-door immigration policy. And so, This led to a series of Immigration Acts being executed. The Immigration Act of 1917, also known as the Asiatic Barred Zone Act, imposed literacy tests on immigrants, creating new categories of inadmissible persons and barring immigration from the Asia-Pacific zone. And the 1924 Act, known as the National Origins Act, made the quotas stricter, permanent. These country-by-country limits were specifically designed to keep out undesirable ethnic groups and maintain America's character as a nation of northern and western European stock. To implement the quotas, the whole immigration process was changed in 1924 to the visa system that is still in use to this day. Of course, by now, the Asian population in California had built communities, married and had families. Whilst the original immigrants were legally prevented from being US citizens, their offspring were born in the USA and thus were American citizens. However, despite having full citizenship, they were tarred with the same brush as the parents by the white population and so, they struggled to understand their place in American society. This second-generation Japanese, or Nisei as they are known, had their question of identity become progressively more difficult to handle in the decade preceding World War II. By the mid-1930s, the Japanese Americans, 70% of which lived in California, were in a state of heightened alert. Anti-Japanese sentiment was once again rising to dangerously new levels with Japan's increasing expansion in Asia. Racism made it extremely difficult for Nisei to find jobs or even attend university. Even though they were American citizens, the white population viewed them as immigrants, just like their parents and grandparents. However, the Nisei did manage to carve out a niche for themselves. They became human bridges, literally mediating between Japanese-American communities and white American society. They crafted their bridge identity through public displays of ethnic performances, such as the Nisei Week Festival in Los Angeles, which started in 1934 and is still running to this day. Nisei wore kimonos, performed ondo dances and held tea ceremonies, while simultaneously waving American flags, strutting in marching bands and wearing the latest American fashions. The bridge metaphor challenged racist assumptions about the Japanese by proclaiming an inclusive American identity. This precursor to our modern idea of diversity encouraged progressive educators to champion the idea of cultural understanding, which, grew in intensity throughout the 1920s and the 1930s. And this slow saturation of cultural awareness and homogenous society began to slowly saturate the white population of California. And whilst this bridge slowly turned the tide on the numbers of outright blatant racial attacks on the Japanese, or low-grade racism as it was termed, was very much part of the Nisei experience. This included disapproval of interracial dating, Asian slangs, which I'm not going to use here in the podcast, but I'm sure you can envisage, and non-inclusion from certain organisations, one being the military. By 1940, approximately 61% of California's Japanese-American community were American-born, and were still ploughing ahead with their bridge. By now, it really was starting to permeate the younger white Californians whom had grown up with the Nisei in their classrooms. But, despite this pervasive bridge slowly permeating the youth, it was a precarious scaffold. Because the older generations, the parents and the grandparents, well, they viewed this cultural permeation as just another way that the Japanese were trying to create a wedge in their country. So, the cultural bridge was always teetering and tottering on its unstable foundation. And despite all the Nisei's hard work in forging their bridge, it was unable to withstand the hysteria following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbour of which the older white generation's long-held racism, but quietened by the bridge movement, suddenly became the voice of a state. Nay, a nation. And phew. We are finally at the end of our history lesson. (laughs) That was a long one, and I am sorry. But I think you can understand now why this one ethnic group was so targeted in the wake of Pearl Harbour, and why this targeting didn't include those of German and Italian descent in the country, and just why, based on a long history of endemic racial fears and tensions, fear-mongering and espionage suspicions, that the detainment of Japanese Americans was so acceptable to the nation, and so harsh and punitive, to the Japanese-Americans. For those of you that listened to episode 18, The Pendulum Swings, you will know that I was toying with doing some minisodes of dark side that focus on events and laws from way, way back in history that moulded our world. In that episode, I'd called the minisodes The Darker Side of History. However, in the end, I went with the name Dark Shadows, because that is exactly what these laws from bygone years, decades and centuries have cast. Long shadows that still spread their tendrils and permeate our world today. In Season 2, I'm hoping to do more Dark Shadows, so keep an eye out for them. As always, I'd love to have you along for the ride. It'll be a bumpy one. So with that said, please don't forget... To stay safe, stay alert. Suze, over and out.